0: Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out.
1: This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. Well, we've all heard of the Great American Songbook. It's something, if you listen to Sinatra music or anything like that, you've always heard it. It's the music of Gershwin, Porter, Irving Berlin, and that sort of thing from the 1930s and 40s and so forth. And 1950s 1950 came along and... Kind of went away, and we're going to find out about that with acclaimed cultural critic Ben Ugoda, who uh, has written for Slate, the New York Times, Esquire, and the American Scholar. He's a journalism professor at the University of Delaware and wrote this great book called The B-Side. And Ben, uh, first of all, maybe uh, you can give more of an explanation of the Great American Songbook because that's so popular, you even nowadays have people like uh, Rod Stewart and Paul McCartney trying to sing some of these things.
0: It's music that is still popular today. No question about it, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the term Great American Songbook dated from, a, I believe uh, it was an album that Carmen McRae put out in the 70s. And it, it just stuck because it seems so right. And uh, the, the, the the nature the particular nature of the songs in that songbook varies a little bit according to who's doing the counting. I mean, it's not an official tally. But basically, people understand that there's some several hundred songs that were written, as you say, the bulk of them in that period between the uh, the mid 1920s and the late 40s into the early 50s that uh, have stood the test of time. I mean, they they're they're just a great body of work, and as you say, uh, uh, people like Rod Stewart. Uh, Aging rockers tend to try to revive their careers by doing albums of them. And this has been going on for a long time as well. Back in the 80s, Willie Nelson did one, Linda Ronstadt did a series, Carly Simon did one. And now, even, uh, e- 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 even this, this particular winter, next week, Bob Dylan is coming out with his new CD that's all going to be relatively obscure songs from the period that had all been done previously by Frank Sinatra. You would, might consider it to be like the bizarro world, Bob Dylan, but <laughs> at this late date, they're having a bit of a meeting of the minds.
1: Yeah, I, I saw that. Have you had any chance to listen to any
0: of that? I, I have, in fact. Uh, Dylan has released two of the songs um, on the CD. One, one's a song called Stay With Me that was the theme from a 1963 movie called The Cardinal and a very obscure song. And and Dylan does a very, uh, you can listen to it on his website, BobDylan.com, a very affecting, spare, rather moving version of it. And the other is uh, an even more obscure song from the 40s called Full Moon and Empty Arms that he put out some months back. And that, again, uh, he, he puts it over kind of well. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction is to this TV when it comes out next week.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that because he put a Christmas album out uh, a year or two ago that was almost sounded like a joke, you know, and you're thinking, oh, man, this poor guy has lost it. He's so great. So I'm really kind of excited about that. That's and this music is so great, too. What is it? I mean, you know, we've lost the Gershwins and that sort of thing. And at the same time, though, I guess rock has had its people like McCartney and Lennon and so forth that have written some great stuff. But what is it about that type of music that has really stood the test of time in your mind?
0: Well, um, you know, the, the the proof of the pudding is the tasting. So, you know, we can see that it's still it still feels. What, what are the qualities of, of it? I, I guess um, one word I'd use is sophistication. It's it's musically and also lyrically sophisticated. Uh, great lyricists like Lorenz Hart and Ira Gershwin and Yip Harburg. Um, the, the key thing to me is, um, I, I guess, two things. One, just a kind of coincidence of genius that that all these songwriters. Uh, were born within about a 15-year period of each other, amazingly enough. And they came around at the same time, and they inspired each other, almost like, you know, I'm a tennis fan, and seeing the period when there's uh, Federer and Nadal and Djokovic is kind of the same thing. They're so great, and each of them spurs the rivals to, to greatness. So there was that. The other thing that comes to mind is is the importance of jazz. Um, you know, uh, in the period when these... Men, and they're all men, uh, for the mo, almost all men were writing in, in, in the twenties. That was when jazz was coming to the fore. So all the great, uh, rhythms and harmonies of jazz music, these guys totally absorbed and listened to and reflected that in their songs. And then beyond that, once they wrote the songs, great jazz musicians like, uh, Billie Holiday, Benny Goodman, Lester Young, uh, did great improvisations with the songs. They really could stand up to it. They they, they, they had the uh, emotional resonance, yet complexity and sophistication that they could hold up and still do hold up to multiple interpretations.
1: Yeah, and part of that is the great singers of the time, I mean, the, the Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, they all sang this music, which... I guess lent itself to how good this music was because all these different interpretations, the song was still great.
0: Absolutely. You know, you'd see in, in, in that period, in the forties, a song would come out and then immediately, or if it was a good song, if one or two people would put out records that they did well, then a dozen or 15 other interpretations would come out. And, you know, Cover songs, we still have them today, but you can't imagine it on that level. And it was sort of a Darwinian struggle each time that the best one would, 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 would top the charts and the others would go by the wayside. But yeah, the songs were so good that they could stand up to these multiple interpretations.
1: So a lot of people blame rock and roll for the death of this. But really, your book covers it well. It was really even a little before that, in 1950, when you had things like, you know, How Much Is a Doggy in the Window, Come Out of My House. You know, these were the popular songs at that time. What happened? I mean, is it just that, you know, again, these were done so well that they, they stopped doing these things? Or uh, did just America's well, taste go a different way or what?
0: Yeah, a, a lot of different things. You know, no no one sort of stood up and And stop. But, but if you look at the, the trade magazines at the time in late 40s and early 50s, Variety and Billboard, people are saying, where are the great songs? You know, where are the songs of, of the Gershwin's? And, I mean, George Gershwin was dead, but uh, these other folks were still around. And, you know, the great songwriters of Berlin and Cole Porter and Rogers and, and Hammerstein by that time were on Broadway and, and doing great stuff. But the sort of the bottom had fallen out of the industry, um, the well had gotten a little bit dry, and at the same time, I think you mentioned public taste had changed. So how much is that dog in the window? That was number one in the country for eight weeks in a row. And and that wasn't through any sort of payola or conspiracy or anything like that. It was because people liked it. People, you know, the war was over, the Depression was over, uh, young servicemen had come home. Were starting families. They didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want to go out and jitterbug. They wanted to stay home and listen to the radio, look at the TV, and you know have have songs that would be that would be fun, enjoyable. In the parlance of a later day, they were after easy listening. So novelty songs, ballads, uh, sentimental ballads by Adaris Day or someone like that. Those were the songs that that were popular in that period. And as you say, several years before rock and roll hit,
1: yeah, and then rock and roll comes, and it's kind of changed our uh, the way we listen to music because now you, there's this thing called classic rock, which was the stuff that I grew up with, which is rock. Right. And, you know, it's funny because I see, and I wanted to get your take on it, some of that classic rock, some of the stuff from Lennon and McCartney and uh, just some of the great stuff, even some even going back to the 50s with the Chuck Berry and so forth, that's almost become kind of uh, American Songbook Part 2 because you're seeing today's rockers and so forth playing it. You're hearing a lot of, like, My kids and stuff, listen to classic rock. Yeah. Do you see a little of that?
0: I, I, well, definitely. And you know, it, it's the reason why I wanted to make sure the subtitle of the book, the B-side, is the death of Tin Pen Alley, but the rebirth of the great American song. You know, I don't want to be one of those get off my lawn people who says everything was great then, then it ended, and everything since then stinks. And, and I certainly don't want to say that, nor do I believe it. Uh, it's different. It's different. And, you know, you mentioned the Beatles. They're, they're such they're geniuses on the level of these earlier people the Gershwins very different but equally influential i mean the beatles came along they they listened to all this stuff they listened to american pop music tin Alley stuff and in fact covered some of it in their own like uh, uh uh yeah the the meredith wilson song from um from music man there were bells on the hill but i never heard them Ringing Till There Was You, they had in one of their first albums. So, uh, but, but beyond that, they gave other younger writers a, a sort of sense of how one could write a great song in, in this era. And com- complex, uh, sophisticated, not simplistic, um, so it's the songs themselves, but equally important, the example they gave. And, and, the, and the final key thing is that they set the idea that the writer would perform his or her own song. Uh, you know, in the yeah. earlier model, uh, the writer would be in one cubicle and the performer in another. Uh, they wouldn't cross. But with the Beatles and subsequent rockers and singer-songwriters at Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell, uh, they were performing their own material. And the folks I've mentioned have done great things with that idea as well.
1: Yeah, there's not too many people out there anymore like that, that just write songs. I and mean, I'm thinking about maybe Bernie, uh, I can't think of his last name, that works with Elton John. That used to Bernie write Toppin, yeah. Yeah, Bernie Toppin. But there's not really a lot of those, are there?
0: No. And, you know, the, the one place where you see that is Nashville. That's, the place uh, in the country song writing and country music industry that has the biggest similarity with the classic Tin Pan Alley with that division of labor, you still see that there. But in in terms of mainstream pop music, um, well, and then I guess the other exception would be the the, the sort of newer pop sounds like a you know a, a Britney Spears or Katy Perry, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they don't write their own material yeah. either. But in in the rock genre. Ever since the Beatles, there's been the expectation that you write your own songs.
1: Well, final question, Ben. A- as you look at this stuff, we-, we have some great stuff coming at now, but do you think the reason we don't have like, the, the quote unquote American songbook anymore like we remember it is because the music is so diversified? Right? I mean, you talked about country, you know, I mean, you just go down, up and down your radio dial, you'll hear country. You can hear the, you know, kind of new wave music, uh, hard yeah. rock, cold, you know, old rock, and so forth.
0: Yeah, hip hop, country, folk, uh, uh, neo-folk, neo-country. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's good and there's bad. In that period of the 30s and 40s, everything was unified and that led to great things. But then a lot of things, a lot of voices weren't heard. I mean, you didn't hear African-American, uh, performers, uh, doing their own stuff on the radio uh the the way you do now in country and country and western was pretty much shut out of the national scene so yeah with 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 the loss of that unity comes the 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 refreshingness of lots of different kinds of sounds lots of different voices are heard uh you can't put the genie back in the bottle
1: now the book people are going to love it whether you're from that era and you just love that music or whether you want to hear about what's happening i mean there's some great interviews in there with linda ronstadt randy newman herb Alpert. just a great look at all this i love the book uh ben one last thing is this why we find even kids today i know my daughter goes to college and it's amazing how many people play some sinatra music it's on their ipods i mean tony bennett is big in there
0: i think that's absolutely right you know uh it's, it's not going to go away, and it's thanks in large part to people like um, Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra you just mentioned, who kept it alive. And Bennett is still out there with Lady Gaga, still performing this music, and uh, I, I hate to make predictions of any kind, but I will say that, yeah, I agree, this will never die.
1: Well, the book is the B-side. Thanks so much for being with us, man. Really enjoyed it. Okay, good. I appreciate you having me. Thank you.